It's time to talk about all things mental health. This is Get Mental with Cecile Ahrens. As a seasoned licensed therapist, Cecile is the owner of Transcend Therapy and is here to inform, guide, and connect you on the big and small everyday happenings that affect our mental and emotional well-being. Cecile is passionate about making a lasting and positive impact on people, connecting them to their own wisdom and strength while having a little fun along the way. Get ready to challenge the power of your human spirit. It's time to get mental. And now here's your host, Cecile Ahrens. All the things they say should matter, corrupted by the senseless chatter. Good morning, everybody. This is your host, Cecile Ahrens on Get Mental Radio. Welcome back. We are here on The Answer San Diego, 1170 AM, 96.1 FM in North County. Thank you so much for being here. And as always, we are here to destigmatize mental health and normalize conversations about mental health and make mental health accessible and relatable to the everyday person. So we're bringing the information over to you instead of waiting for you to come to my office, per se. So today we have a very interesting topic. I wanted to talk about the movie Joker because the movie has been very polarizing and there's been a lot of mixed feelings about it. Um, And there's been comments made about, you know, how it, might be uh, perpetuating and glorifying violence and so forth. So I wanted to get um, I wanted to get mental to weigh in on these issues since the movie really had a lot of things to say about mental health and mental illness. My name is Cecile Ahrens. I'm a therapist in San Diego, California, and I also um, own Transcend Therapy, which is an outpatient um, clinic in San Diego, where we provide individual couples and family counseling. You can check us out at TranscendTherapyCA.com for more information. TranscendTherapyCA.com for more information. Okay. Also, you may listen to us on our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Anchor, and any other platform you listen to uh, where you listen to your podcast. You should find us there. So back to our topic today, the, the movie Joker. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have a love-hate relationship about it, um, while others remain unaffected or indifferent about it. Um, like I said, I wanted to talk about it because I think the movie tries to talk about or demonstrate the, the human condition and how emotional and psychological trauma can impact a person. I know this is only a movie, but like I said, for the purpose of the show, we're going to try to get into, um, the Joker's head, and try to break down and and deconstruct what he may be uh, going through psychologically, okay? There's going to be spoiler alerts, and I'm really sorry about that, but it's going to be hard for me to talk about this in a clinical way without giving you certain specifics about the movies. So if we look at the Joker's life, as the movie suggests, we see a man who has been bullied, ridiculed, beaten, physically abused by his adoptive mother's partner, 
he we know at the end towards the end that he was adopted so adoption is often traumatic for people and can create feelings of abandonment and rejection to say the least we can see that he was socially isolated and marginalized because of his mental illness and marginalization guys if you don't know what that means is when a certain group of people is seen as insignificant or they're excluded from the inherent benefits of being considered normal. So people with mental illness, especially a person like the Joker, if he existed in the real world, would be greatly marginalized because he's strange, he's odd. Um, So that's essentially what marginalization means. The Joker exhibited many bizarre behaviors, including his intense, inappropriate laughter. For those of you who've seen the movie, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. He would laugh um, in this very weird, creepy, sad way, which was his scoping skill when he was feeling sad, angry, um, or upset. So it was a, a way in which he decided to cope with his feelings, a form of defense mechanism, really. So he's a bit of a clinical puzzle, in my opinion. Um, and if the Joker were to be a real person, if, if we had to diagnose him, it would, be, it would be challenging. And I think many of my peers would probably agree with that. But if I had to, for the sake of fun and games, if I had to um, diagnose someone like him, I would say that he became a psychopath, largely due to his developmental and relational traumas. I know there's a lot of clinical jargon there. So I know a lot of you know and heard of the word psychopath, right? But the, the truth is there's actually no such diagnosis, believe it or not, right? A word that we all use and uh, to describe criminal behavior is actually technically not a diagnosis. There's a diagnosis called antisocial personality disorder, which a lot of people, you know, I think would think that he was that way. But um, uh, psychopathy is, is, is not, not exactly the same as antisocial personality disorder. I'm going to talk a little bit about this more a little later. But if I had to diagnose him, he would be um, a psychopath or almost a psychopath um, because of his developmental and relational traumas and what that did to him. So in this fantasy world, his primary diagnosis would be psychopath with psychotic features for those of you with an interest in psychology. And his secondary diagnosis would be complex trauma or complex PTSD, okay? So unfortunately, there are technically no such diagnoses yet, like I said. Um, Psychopathy is is a term used to describe a cluster of traits, and it's seen more as a personality trait, not a mental health uh, diagnosis per se. It's, um, it's, it's the stuff that makes up a person's personality. And a lot of these folks are incarcerated and not hospitalized. That's the difference. When somebody is mentally incapacitated they, and they committed crimes, they would usually be hospitalized. But when somebody um, is committing violent crimes the way the Joker did, they usually would end up in my clinical opinion, in jail. But in in the movie, that's not how it was portrayed, okay? So what I want to point out today 
because I think it's really important, is the link between childhood trauma and the path to being a psychopath, because there is a link. But first, I want to say that we know that psychopaths are a very small number of the population. They only, experts say, make up about 1% of the population. Thank God, right? Because really, they are very, very dangerous people. So this 1% is believed to translate to about 25% of the male offenders in our federal prisons currently. So another interesting fact, as I was doing my research, is that most people who fall under, um, who meet criteria for, for psychopathy, and there are, there's a test that um, they can take, to, and, and there's a way to assess whether somebody meets the criteria for that, most of them are men, which to me I think is really interesting. We're not really sure exactly why this is, but my initial hypothesis on that is that it may have something to do with the differences in the way men and women are socialized and conditioned, especially around violence. So that's just my initial hypothesis. So back to psychopathy. So psychopathy is a complex combination of biology and environment, what we often refer to in our field as nature versus nurture. Okay, how much of this is nature, meaning biology, and how much of it is nurture, meaning their experiences and the environment in which they were, they were raised. We don't really know exactly what the ratio is, but some studies have shown, this is what we do know, that there is a strong relationship between childhood trauma and the development of psychopathy. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. There is a strong link between childhood trauma and the development or the, uh, the propensity of a person becoming a psychopath. And there's a study that actually um, showed, showed that. In other words, the more traumas, the more severe traumas a person has, the higher the risk for him to become a psychopath. Now, I want to pause there for a second and just give you guys a few disclaimers because I don't want you to, you know, uh, misconstrue what I'm saying here. Trauma does not equal psychopathy. Just because somebody has a lot of trauma does not mean they're going to turn into a psychopath, okay? That's a very important distinction. All I'm saying here is that the higher the uh the, uh, the more severe the trauma is that a person has experienced and the higher instances of trauma in their life puts them at a higher risk to develop psychopathy, to become a psychopath, okay? Um, especially complex trauma. I'm not just talking about a single event of trauma. Usually it's complex trauma that can be a risk factor for many mental health issues, mental health disorders, and on rare occasions, unfortunately, becoming a psychopath. But remember, the good news is experts say psychopaths only make up 1% of the population. So hopefully, you know, I'm not creating unnecessary fear and anxiety for, for everyone. So the study I'm referring to um, is a study of 183 adult male criminal offenders the study showed that the more severe the overall, overall childhood treatment was or maltreatment was, the more severe the level of psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder in that particular inmate or prisoner. So 
I'm not surprised by that. And I used to work in a correctional facility and just with, you know, over 20 years in the mental health field, I know firsthand that most people have trauma, whether it's the little traumas or the big traumas. Most everybody has a combination of them. So when I worked in the correctional facility, there was nobody that, um, that I came into contact with that didn't have complex trauma, in my opinion. They had multiple traumas. They had prolonged trauma. There was neglect, abuse. There were so many needs that were not met in childhood for love, attention, time, um, and so forth. And I really think that had that was my clinical intuition that this may have a lot to do with why they ended up perpetrating the crimes that they did. And a lot of studies are are showing that. Okay, so someone might have say um, uh, a psychopathic brain, but it doesn't. I think it doesn't. You know, the the, the their life experiences is what for some of them pushes them over the edge, right? There's actually a neuroscientist I was reading about him. And because of how he understands the brain, you know, he was saying that from a brain scan, he would classify as somebody who has a psychopathic brain, but he did not um, end up being a psychopath, obviously, uh, maybe because he had a lot of protective factors that protected him from, um, you know, traumatic experiences or from um, not healing from whatever circumstances he may have been bestowed upon, or maybe he just had a healthy childhood. But that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about protective versus risk factors. And I'm going to flesh that out a little more um, as I go on. So being a therapist who specializes in trauma, I want to focus on the traumas that have shaped who I believe the Joker became and what I believe clinically led to his actions in the end. Again, this is just a movie. But because the movie has sparked so much talk about mental illness, I decided to weigh in from a clinical standpoint. So let's review again. Uh, There's a comment here. Big concern and big big red flag that I use is the true absence of empathy. They really don't have it. Yes, I completely agree. That is one of the hallmarks of psychopathy is that they don't really, they don't care. They, They don't feel remorse or pain in the way that we do, and they don't necessarily need a connection or, or relationships. So it's easy for them to hurt others because they're not motivated by love and connection in the way that we are. And their brains are very different. Um, so thank you for that comment. So let's go back to the Joker. What do we know about him? I'm going to just review it, okay? Bullied, beaten, physically abused by his adoptive mother's partner, abandoned. I would suspect that he may have probably been neglected from time to time because his mom was very unstable, his adoptive mom, and she was intermittently psychiatrically hospitalized. So there's most likely some neglect that would have happened there when she wasn't stable. He was socially isolated at work, and his neighborhood or community was also isolative him and ridiculed him and part of like part of the the was part of his traumatic experience right he got beat up um, in his own neighborhood and because of his symptoms 
you know, and his odd presentation and his his bizarre behaviors, it was hard for the regular person to not feel uh, strange or or threatened by him. Um, he had several traumatic losses, okay, in the movie, loss of both of his jobs, which meant loss of purpose, identity, meaning, and structure. Most of the time, that's what happens. Um, his therapy abruptly ended, okay, which, you know, is traumatizing for a lot of people, especially, especially someone like him, if he were to be a real person in real time, who doesn't have a whole lot of resources um, to begin with, to continue therapy. And the other significant loss here is the abrupt end of his relationship with his therapist. Most people, I don't think, understand how uh, traumatic that can be to a person who, especially someone like him, who doesn't have um, a whole lot of support. You know, other than his mother, the therapist was, you know, arguably one of his significant, very few significant relationships. And for that to abruptly end can be traumatic. Then the loss of his mother, another important and significant relationship. His primary relationship was his mother, even though we know what he did. And, you know, I'm not going to say how the mother passed away, the adoptive mom, but still, that is still a loss, huge loss. Loss of identity, right? Because he found out that he was adopted. So, you know, that can be very, very traumatic because now he has to like reorganize his whole identity and integrate this new information. And, you know, adoption in and of itself is another subject because, like I said, there's a lot of um, pain and trauma around that alone. So that's another loss. So you can see, right, that he had a lot of pain and traumatic experiences. And if, if he were to be a real person, he would have a lot of mental health issues. That would not be surprising. The other important factor to emphasize is this idea of grievance. Grievance is often present when people decide to commit murder or mass murder in particular. I talked about this on my show on mass shootings and gun violence a couple of months ago. And I recommend that you listen to it because um, there's, it's packed with good information based on research and, and it should inform and inspire you to be part of the solution. So that show is called Gun Violence in America, Horror and Hope, and you can access that on our podcast, Get Mental, okay? But anyway, I talked about grievance there because the research shows that grievance is almost always present when somebody decides to kill a group of people, okay? And what is grievance? Grievance is the feeling of being wronged. But unfortunately, in, in the Joker's case, he was in fact wronged on so many levels. It wasn't just a feeling of being wronged. It was a real experience over and over again of being wronged. So I'm going to offer an even more poignant um, definition of grievance, okay? And this is from a professor in Worcester State University named James Silver. He also wrote a book called Almost a Psychopath, which I think is very interesting. Almost a Psychopath. Anyway, he describes grievance as a long-standing and intense feeling that you've been wronged. It's more than just anger. It doesn't just 
dissipate or go away. It's sort of an injury that won't heal. And it becomes a driving force in a person's life where they feel that they need to somehow right this wrong and balance the scales. To me, this clearly describes the Joker's inner world. In my opinion, this is my, the clinical uh, makeup of the Joker. Complex trauma or complex PTSD plus grievance equaled him becoming psychopathic or almost a psychopath. Okay? So when I say trauma, just to clarify, it can be anywhere from major catastrophic life-threatening events like abuse or assault or being in combat for many of our veterans. But it can also be, you know, everyday events, being made fun of, teased, losing a pet, not having a lot of friends, being bullied, things of that nature. And in my opinion, the Joker did not have enough protective factors to prevent him from doing what he did. Evil won over good in its most simple comic-like analogy, right? Evil won over good in, 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 um, in this movie. I believe a person is more at risk to become violent and psychopathic when the risk factors outweigh the protective factors, okay? Doesn't mean that they will be. I'm just saying there's more risk that they might turn into that. In other words, when there's more bad stuff than good stuff in one's life, and when the bad stuff sticks more than the good stuff. As a trauma therapist, like I said, I couldn't help but filter what I was watching from a trauma lens. It made perfect sense to me why he would be pushed to the point of psychopathy and delusional thought. And delusions are sometimes just defense mechanisms. Okay? A false life that somebody forms in their head because the reality of their life becomes too much to bear. So in the Joker's case, he created this fantastical idea of himself because he was really powerless. So he had to create this false, you know, powerful persona um, in his head, I believe, to protect from feelings of loss, pain, shame. But inside, he was lonely, hollow, depressed, felt like he had nothing to live for, and felt like society owed him something, right? Revenge. I think he was seeking revenge. He confessed to his crimes, but with no empathy or remorse, which is the hallmark of psychopathy. He had his sick, twisted rationale for his crimes, as is often the case for psychopaths. He wanted, to know, he wanted the world to know what he did. And what is the ultimate way for a psychopath to gain some sort of significance? We've seen this over and over again, guys. What do they do? They commit a crime that is violent, horrifying, unthinkable, unforgettable, as depicted in the scene between, between him and Robert De Niro. And I'm not going to... Spoiler alert. I'm not going to spoil that for you guys. So that's what they end up doing. Some might argue that psychopaths don't care about significance. What do you think? Why do you think he did it? Was it for, for revenge? Was he seeking significance? Not, notoriety? Or maybe he was just 
almost a psychopath. I don't know. You decide. Todd, what do you think? What are your thoughts? I know you just saw it this weekend. Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings on it. I'm um, going to put this on so I can hear Todd. Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings on it. Uh, it, it, it was very dark, mm -hmm. which I think maybe to some people that have never dealt with any mental health issues that maybe sheds a little light on really how, you know, dark of a time it can be for somebody. Yes. Um, Great point. The, the schizophrenic part about it when him, you know, talking to people that weren't there and stuff, that's kind of another thing. So I think, you know, part of me didn't like it because I think, you know, some people are upset that, you know, there's some glorification. Yes. Um, that goes, that went along with this movie. Yeah. But it is a very dark movie. And I think it does kind of shed some light on, that mental health, if you don't have support, if you don't have a support team around you and you don't have any options, like you said, that the, his uh, medication and his counseling got cut. Yeah. And that's when he kind of started to spiral. So in that sense, I think it was, it, it's kind of good for some people to see that. Um, and it was, you know, it is, makes you, it really made me think, you know, nature versus nurture. Yeah. You know, how much of it was inside him already and then, you know, how much of it, it was the world just kind of beating him down. Yes. That was kind of my perspective. Thank you. That's actually a really, in my opinion, a great perspective because um, that was very thoughtful. I think the movie did do that. It did highlight, you know, the complex, right, the complexity of mental health and that, that interplay between someone's mental health condition and society and what we can do and what we do and don't do to support them. You know, even though, even though this is a comic book m movie, I, I think um, it was very interesting that it spoke so much about the issues of our day. And it tried to anyway, despite kind of all the, the negativity around it. So thank you for your thoughts, Todd. You're welcome. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, it's, it's just a movie, and we're just playing pretend here. But um, movies can be powerful. Media is powerful. Uh, language is powerful. Characters are powerful. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the critique around this movie because I, I understand why there is some concern around glorification and violence. I'm going to address that. So just to be clear... I do not endorse or condone the movie's graphic portrayal of violence. I personally think some of the m more violent scenes were unnecessary. It's not my cup of tea, personally, but from a creative standpoint, I get why a filmmaker would feel the need to show those scenes. Okay? There are moral debates that I will weigh in on a little later in the show, so stick around for that. But back to the Joker. I also think he was depressed. Right, And it's not hard to understand why. Um, and one of the scenes that captured this for me is when he said, I've never been happy for an effing minute of my life or something to that effect, which is really sad. And, and th the more sad thing is that, you know, I've, I've met people like that. I've worked with people like that. But the good news is there is help out there. And you don't have to feel this way. And a lot of these things can be treated, believe it or not. Again, only 1% of the population are true psychopaths. So there's always hope, you guys. There's only a small part of the population that really we don't know 
how to treat, how to fix, how to rehabilitate. That's the truth. The mental health industry doesn't know how to, to deal with them yet. But, you know, they're in jail. Most of them are in jail. Some of them are, are not. They're still out there, unfortunately. That's the reality. I hate to say that. <sighs> they're out there. So here's the deal. Like I said, no cure for psychopaths. So your best defense is to know the signs, educate yourself, heal your own wounds and traumas that would cause you to be attracted to someone like that in your life, whether romantically or socially, okay? And stay away. Stay away from them once you know, once you have that feeling because it will never end well. It will never end well. It is not in your best interest whatsoever. You can't save them. You can't rescue them. You can't motivate them for change. You can't facilitate empathy. There's nothing you can do, okay? I just, I just want to let you guys really understand that. Um, what is usually resolvable, though, here's the good news, because I'm you know, always on the bright side of things, is that traumatic injuries are sol- uh, resolvable. And people who seek therapy put in the time and the work and have the means and resources to do so often benefit and heal. I know this firsthand. I've seen this firsthand over and over again. I know this firsthand in my personal life. That's what I mean, okay? I've done the work. So this is why I do what I do. And we do it all the time at Transcend Therapy. We help people heal. We help people feel better. We help people do better. We are results-driven, and we provide compassionate quality care, and we're very trauma-focused because, like I said, most, if not everybody, has had some form of trauma in their life, and it's really important that you have a therapist who understands that, who is analyzing you from that lens and ruling out how, how you know, the, the role that trauma has played in why you're experiencing what you're experiencing, okay? Because many of these wounds can heal. So if you live in San Diego and you think we might be a good fit, please give us a call, 619-823-1382. Or actually, if you live in California, because we can do telehealth, that's video or phone sessions, give us a call, 619-823-1382, or go to our website, transcendtherapyca.com. That's transcendtherapyca.com. And you'll get a ton of information about our practice and how we, uh, our approach and how we work with people, okay? But in the meantime, we'll be taking a short break. And when we return, we will be, dis- we will be discussing some of the critiques of the movie, including the controversial linking of the movie to President Trump. I'm going to talk about that. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Supporting local business isn't always convenient, but at Ortiz Market, it is. Ortiz Market has all your shopping needs right at the corner of Escondido Boulevard and 13th Avenue in Escondido. They're family-owned and operated and feature a huge selection of local beverages. 
And if they don't have what you're looking for, they'll order it for you. That means you can get what you want without the long lines you find at big name supermarkets. The best part is they care about serving our community and are here to join the fight to destigmatize mental health and let people know you are not alone. Visit Ortiz Market today at the corner of Escondido Boulevard and 13th Avenue in Escondido. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Get Mental Radio, where we talk about all things mental health. Today, we are talking about the movie Joker and breaking down the clinical and social components of the film. If you want to suggest future topics, have burning questions about anything, anything, literally anything related to mental health and emotional health, call us or email us, transcendtherapy at gmail.com transcendtherapy at gmail.com or if you'd like to become a sponsor or advertise with us just go to our website transcendtherapyca.com transcendtherapyca.com and you will be able to make a donation through our donation tab or just email me or give us a call and we'll be happy to help you your donation will make a difference this is a community funded show and it takes a village for us to protect and support our communities against the mental health crisis that we face today. Okay, everybody, thank you for that. Back to the Joker. So like I said, this movie has been so incredibly polarizing and many, many people have mixed feelings about it. I can't say I love it, but I feel like I really get the movie, okay? I I, I get it especially because of all the mental health stuff around it. The number one critique I'd like to address is a criticism that links President Trump to the movie by saying that, I want to make sure Todd is listening. Okay. So one of the the things that has been said about the movie is that it is an insidious validation of the white male resentment that helped bring President Trump to power, end quote. Again, Beginning quote, an insidious validation of the white male resentment that helped President Donald Trump bring President Donald Trump to power, end quote. I'm just going to confer with Todd here for a second. Did you hear that, Todd? I did hear that. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, um, that's kind of interesting because... Uh, and we did tell people spoiler alerts on this, right? <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, I, I found this interesting that that comment interesting because the other aspect of it was he was touted as a hero for killing these Wall Street elites. Um, that's how Joker for, in the movies first starts. You know, pe- he killed those three guys in the subway, right? And they were white elite kind of elitists, correct? And so it's interesting. He killed his own people. Well. It, to me, like that kind of represented, you know, people that are that don't like this movie. I think one of the reasons they say that, well, that's kind of like anti-capitalism. Ah. That he was, and and if anything, Trump, I think, would be categorized in that group. Right. So that's he, a great point. I didn't he, even think about just that. the fact that he's white. I guess you can kind of say, oh yeah, white male kind of thing. But if anything, I I saw it as a movie that would be kind of almost anti-capitalism anti-Trump right anti the powerful white male yeah figure yeah yeah so for them to say this you know white resentment anger that 
you know, got Trump elected, uh, I think uh, Joker character was coming from more of a, you know, a poor, broken down uh, person that wasn't part of the elite. Right. So I, 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 that's interesting, though. But I think nowadays you can take any person and when you politicize it, you can put them in any category. And put your own fits. spin on yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But did you hear about that criticism before no, I, I said not. it? No, I did not. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it was it was a uh, very interesting. And it's from a CNN staffer named Jeff Yang, who wrote a column about his opinion of the movie. So here's my take without getting too political. And I will preface what I'm about to say as solely my personal opinion. OK, I do not believe that the movie intended to be about white male resentment. Even if it were, let's just pretend that even if it were a movie about that, about white male resentment, I don't know that white male resentment it was, is what led President Trump to win the election. Okay, It's far more complicated than that, in my opinion. And really, to me, that sounds like a put-down to anyone who voted for Trump. It's a dangerous statement because it promotes a negative view of all Trump supporters and homogenizes Trump voters. What do I mean by homogenize? That means to make everyone the same. Okay? And that's what we do in this country. We homogenize Republicans. We homogenize Democrats. We make everybody the same. But the truth is there is diversity among voters in both parties. We just have a hard time acknowledging that because then we would have to adjust our own narratives about each other. We would have to change our stories about each other. And that's hard. That's hard to do. The bottom line is, I don't believe this movie was intended to be a political statement or political commentary whatsoever. I think, if anything, it tries to make a statement about mental illness and the social conditions of our day. That's my personal opinion, okay? So the second criticism is that it stigmatizes mental illness. This one is near and dear to my heart because I'm doing a show called Get Mental, whose main purpose is to destigmatize mental health, okay? So does it stigmatize mental health? I think it can. That's my answer. I don't know that it always does. It depends on who's watching. It didn't stigmatize it for me because of my background, but I think for, the, for, the, for other people who don't have, you know, the understanding and the clinical kind of lens that it may, it can. More specifically, I think what I'm more concerned about is it can mislead the everyday person to incorrectly conclude that a person with mental illness was, will most likely become violent or that violence largely happens because of mental illness. I think, you know, some people might incorrectly make that link. I stand by my belief, and I, I said this in my, my previous shows, that a person who chooses to hurt or harm others by way of violent crimes, may not always have a mental health diagnosis. It's actually a fact. Um, but they are definitely mentally unstable and disturbed. Okay, They may not meet criteria for an actual diagnosis, but I stand by the fact that they are mentally unstable and disturbed, if we had to get technical. In principle, 
they were not mentally fit or of sound mind when they committed the crime, right? Even though, you know, we're saying they didn't have a mental health disorder or diagnosis like Stephen Paddock, who, uh, it always breaks my heart when, when I think about it, who committed the, the mass murder on 1st October in Las Vegas. He technically did not have a mental health disorder, but, you know, in principle and philosophically speaking, I mean, of course he was mentally disturbed and unstable. I mean, you, you couldn't do that, right, without, without ha- having some kind of mental break in, in, in yourself. Or maybe he was psychopathic. That's the other, you know, theory that I have. Um, the pathway to violence is always a complex and complicated story. That's the truth. And I think sometimes we get caught up in semantics. We tend to use the terms mentally ill as a catch-all phrase to explain a variety of behaviors. But this is why we have the show, to break down these concepts and educate the public about what mental illness is and about what it isn't. Mental illness usually does not lead to violence, guys. Here's the newsflash. Trauma and childhood um, experiences, specifically Childhood traumas and relationship traumas are more predictive of violence than mental illness. Does that make sense? That mental illness alone is actually a a poor uh, predictor of violence. But trauma and, and severe childhood maltreatment and complex trauma, that's prolonged trauma, multiple traumas, is actually more predictive of violent behavior. Than, than watching a movie on violence or um, having a mental health diagnosis, okay? Those are the facts. So the takeaway is the movie can stigmatize mental health and mental illness, but people who commit the worst crimes don't always have a mental health diagnosis. The third criticism is the movie normalizes and glorifies violence. Well, and that's kind of what Todd was saying. Well, I think that it can, for sure. But so do the other forms of movies and media. And if we are going to make the movie accountable to the perpetuation of violence in our country today, then we would have to look at all the other ways we promote violence in our media today. It is everywhere, literally, even in, in the, the, the shows that my kids watch. You know, even though it's like age appropriate, PG-13, there's still some form of violence, right? Heroes, you know, saving the day. And how do they save the day? By killing other, the bad guys, right? It's, it's so insidious in our conditioning. So, um, yes, it can normalize and glorify violence. But, it, you know, like I said, the movie is a part of a larger pattern of violence becoming normalized in our society. We have a culture of violence. And I think, you know, I'm concerned about, um, you know, the copycat behaviors or copycat, copycat crimes um, that may occur because of it, because that can happen. But the way I comfort myself on that is the reality is, as far as the research goes, um, most violent crimes, um, a movie alone does not, you know, put someone at risk for violent crimes, right? There, there has to be other fact, there has, has to be other factors, other risk factors that will make some 
somebody uh, at risk for violence. The propensity for violence isn't just because they watched a movie. They would have had to have all those other risk factors that I talked about, and um, grievance is a big thing. So again, I want to reiterate, most people with a diagnosed mental health condition do not commit violent crimes, and there are many factors that lead to criminal, criminal behaviors, especially mass shootings. And uh, movies alone do not cause someone to become violent and harm people. But I do believe that it normalizes violence. It desensitizes us to violence, um, which is a problem in and of itself. Okay. Um, and I know, you know, people also talk about video games. I, get, I think all of those things, video games, violent movies, violent shows, can contribute to one's propensity for violence, but it is, it is not the root cause for violence. So those are my thoughts on that. Um, a few more points. I think the movie also tries to make a statement. This is really important in my opinion as a social worker and therapist. It tries to make a statement about the lack of mental health care in our country, about the current health care system. Because the reality is if you don't have private insurance in the United States, you can be really, really disadvantaged. Okay, and I know there are county-funded clinics and hospitals out there, and if you have Medi-Cal or Medicare, that can help. But if you don't know how to navigate the system or you don't even know what your options are, like in the Joker's case, when his treatment was de discontinued due to funding, then people like him will fall through the cracks. Okay, and I've seen this. I used to work, I mean, I've been around, um, working for various uh, you know, private and public sectors. So we can do a better job um, trying to improve access to care. Although I'm proud to say, you know, we have done a lot, but there's still room for improvement. In real life, someone like Joker would probably have a treatment team. He would probably have a case manager. And at the very least, he would be transferred to another clinic or provider, and he would be given other resources. A safety plan would also have been discussed with him, right? It, it would be really grossly negligent and unethical if he were just dismissed in the way that the movie uh, portrayed it. That usually doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that way. Yes, fundings get cut but usually there's a discharge plan, that's what we call it. So that wasn't um, very believable, that part. But again, it is a movie. And in the end, I think we have to remember, that's all it really is. It's just a movie. And we need to focus on strengthening our families, protecting our children, providing adequate mental health services, healing traumas because that's where our power truly lies as a city as a country as a society that's my humble opinion we need to keep working towards creating safer stable communities so that we can know the signs recognize the signs of psychopathy lower the risk of somebody actually getting to that point of violence and, you know, really 
diminish the the traumatic experiences that is is all around us. Every time there's a mass shooting, you cannot say that business as usual, right? It might look out there that business is going as usual, but psychologically, emotionally, it isn't. People are impacted directly and indirectly. So I'd like to end with a question. Um, and this was a question that was posed to me by uh, somebody I know because they were very disturbed by the movie and they asked, how is like how likely is Joker to be a real life client? Okay. Because um, it created a lot of fear in them. So <laughs> unfortunately, in my opinion, very likely. Okay. But fortunately, like I keep saying, it's not very common. Like I said, psychopaths consist of 1% of the population. So that should hopefully be comforting to you guys. But the truth is, his character and many aspects of his story and personality already exist. They're already here. They've been here for centuries. So psychopaths have been around. Um, or almost a psychopath, right? That's kind of what we're contending. Is he a psychopath? Almost a psychopath? Anyway, whatever the case, um, people like him are usually incarcerated or are deceased, either through death penalty or, you know, suicide, homicide type stuff. Or they're somewhere out there still in our society. I know that's a scary thought, but... Part of Get Mental is to get real. This is the reality, guys. That's why I keep doing the show. That's why I keep saying focus on what we can control. Education, healing, access to care, creating safer, more stable communities. That's really um, where our power lies, okay? And provide mental health services as early on in the cycle or path to violence as possible. But we're not going to be able to do that if we don't know the signs and if we don't have the means and resources to help that person or that family. Okay? It takes a village. It takes, it takes a community effort for us to really address these things. Um, there are things that we can do on an individual level, but there are also social conditions that need to be present in order for, you know, for us to be truly preventive and proactive um, and for us to truly help, you know, the, lar- the broader society. So those are my thoughts. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Please feel free to comment. Um, let me know what you think. And um, if there are any topics you want me to discuss further, uh, email me, call me, text me, <laughs> and I'll be happy to break it down for you guys. So like I always say, get uh, be well and be gentle. You are listening to Get Mental Radio. This is Cecile Ahrens, owner of Transcend Therapy. And until next time, guys, hope you enjoyed it. Bye for now.
Thanks for joining us today on Get Mental with Cecile Aarons. To learn more about Cecile, become a sponsor or guest on Get Mental, or if you have any questions about mental health, visit TranscendTherapyCA.com. That's TranscendTherapyCA.com. Join us next week at this same time for more talk on all things mental health on Get Mental with Cecile Aarons. Don't